Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling great stories from the past. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we're coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We're coming with stories to tell, and we hope you'll listen. With us in the studio today are Dr. Lorraine Patterson, Professor Ernie Tucker, and Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, who will be relating the marvelous story of a Zanzibari revolutionary who traveled the world in search of Marxist wisdom and then returned home to become one of the most powerful men of his time and place. Ali Sultan Issa lived a very full life, full of contradictions, part dedicated revolutionary, part playboy, part opportunist. Issa's life story tells us a lot about how the Cold War was truly a global conflict, shaping the lives of people around the world, even in a Muslim island chain off the coast of Africa called Zanzibar. It's also an amazing story in its own right, as told to me by Issa himself over hundreds of hours of interviews, often with the warm and wild waters of the Indian Ocean lapping in the distance. Though there's something in Issa's story to offend nearly everyone, it nevertheless is highly valuable for what it reveals about a revolutionary era in world history. Born in 1932, Issa grew up in Zanzibar town, one of the most cosmopolitan places in the world at the time, where Africans mixed with Arabs, Indians, Persians, and British colonial officials. As an Arab boy in colonial schools, Issa was small in stature, but highly assertive, reckless, and rebellious. He developed an insatiable desire to travel, especially to the UK, to find out how such a small island managed to rule so much of the world. Setting out at the age of 19, he went first to India, where the poverty of Bombay and Calcutta appalled him. Eventually, he found work on a ship bound for Mozambique, then Morocco, and then South Africa. Jumping ship in Cape Town, he pretended to be a colored South African in order to get work as a waiter. In Cape Town, he learned to dance the jitterbug and sing Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole songs. He stayed with a domestic servant named Sophia, whom he married and impregnated, but then abandoned when he stowed away on a ship headed for Zanzibar. After a stint working on the docks of Dar es Salaam, Issa made another attempt to travel to the UK. Yet all he could afford was a deck passenger ticket to India, which meant he slept on the deck and begged for food from other passengers. From Bombay, he traveled for free on the tops of trains all the way to Bangladesh, where he found another ship in need of crew. They took a load of scrap metal to Japan, where Issa tried and failed to enlist in the American army fighting in Korea at the time. Crossing the Pacific, Issa quarreled with his Greek ship captain and then jumped ship in Vancouver, Canada. After a couple of months, Issa eventually found work on another ship headed to the UK. He showed up in August 1953 and immediately got in touch with Zanzibaris working and studying in London. Since boyhood, Issa had rebelled against Muslim social conventions by sneaking out of his boarding school in the middle of the night to go dancing, drinking, and seducing. By the time he arrived in London, he'd become a firm opponent of colonialism. As he mixed with other Zanzibaris in London, their conversations frequently turned to politics. It took only a few months for him to experience a complete revolution in his thinking, though only recently he tried to enlist in the American army fighting communism in Korea. On May Day, 1954, Issa joined the British Communist Party, which was the only party wanting to grant immediate independence to the colonies. After finishing his shift as a dishwasher, Issa attended party meetings and seminars. He read widely and even sat in for free on evening courses at the University of London. 
became rather skillful at class analysis. In the summers, though, he would sign up for work on ships that took him to West Africa, Latin America, and even Norfolk, Virginia. Because of the color of his skin, he was told in Norfolk to separate from his white sailor friends and walk on the other side of the street. As a seaman and dishwasher, Issa saved up enough money by 1957 to pay for his own way to Moscow, where he attended an international youth festival. Thousands of young people from all over the world came to the Russian city to celebrate the supposedly miraculous achievements of the Soviet system. As an official delegate representing Zanzibar, Issa was driven in his own car into a football stadium full of tens of thousands of Russians. He shouted out, long live the friendship of the people of Russia and the people of Zanzibar. He was so loud that later that day, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, probably the second most powerful man in the world, invited him to attend an official ball and even dance with Madame Fertseva, a female member of the Politburo. The real highlight of his Moscow visit, though, was seeing a performance of Swan Lake at the Bolshoi Theater. He was so mesmerized by the Tchaikovsky Ballet that a few years later he named his daughter Raisa after the Russian dancer Raisa Struchkova. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, Ali Sultan's background and how he really fit into where he was from, from Zanzibar, and sort of who he was and, and, and how, how can you situate him? Yeah, that's a great question. He, on one side, came from fairly distinguished ancestors. One of his grandmothers was the wife of a former sultan. Um, and also in his family tree was a noted um, Muslim judge and cleric and scholar. Um, but his own mother was actually unstable, you might say, in relationships with men and went through several marriages and divorces. And so they moved around quite a bit around Zanzibar town in different neighborhoods, both African and Arab. So he mixed with people from all walks of life. And he credited that experience with his sort of willingness to sort of see beyond racial or ethnic barriers and see people as who they are rather than members of a particular racial community, say. He also spent time in Pemba, the northern, more rural island of the Zanzibar island chain. So he kind of had his foot on both islands and could speak from experience from both. How interesting. And this question I have for you follows on from Ernie's question to you. I mean, it's a remarkable story. He's a world traveler already in his 20s. He's traveled so much. So does this make him unique for his time and place or not? Well, yes and no. In one way, it does in the sense that he was going so far afield. He was probably the first Zanzibar to ever go set foot in Moscow, for example, uh, and one of the very first to go to China, North Vietnam, places like Prague, East Berlin, and so forth. Um, so his contacts in the north were very unusual, but part of a wave of Zanzibaris at the, at the time who were also seeking scholarships and opportunities to travel abroad in the 1950s and 60s. But he was one of the very first of that generation to, to do so. But I should also point out that Zanzibar has historically been a very cosmopolitan place. Within the Indian Ocean, it's very common for Zanzibaris to travel from East Africa to Arabia to India, even further afield. But I guess Issa was unique because he went even further afield than that. When Issa returned home in 1958, Zanzibar was in the midst of a partisan struggle that would ultimately lead to extreme violence and full-scale revolution. 
Issa jumped into the struggle with both feet, joined the Zanzibar Nationalist Party, or ZNP, which demanded immediate independence from the British. The ZNP was a big tent. It included socialists like Issa, but also wealthy Arab planters who controlled much of the land and produced Zanzibar's most lucrative export crop, cloves, which gave Zanzibar its nickname, the Spice Island. But Arabs were a minority of under 20% of the population. Most Zanzibaris were of at least partial African descent, yet were divided in their political loyalties. Most supported the Afro-Shirazi Party, or ASP, which claimed that if the ZNP gained power after the inevitable British withdrawal, they would try and reimpose slavery. Zanzibar, after all, had been the center of the brutal and notorious East African slave trade until the British abolished it and slavery itself by the turn of the 20th century. In ASP speeches, a frequent tactic was to vividly recount the past sufferings of African slaves and threaten that if the ASP did not win power, the islands would go back to the horrible way things were before. As a socialist, Issa detested racial politics. He had also felt sympathy for the island's poor African majority. He quickly rose through the ranks of the ZNP and was eventually appointed the party's representative in Cairo. There, he made many contacts with, with officials from the Eastern Bloc who paid for his travels to Cuba, East Germany, China, North Vietnam, and other socialist countries. He met many of the most famous men of his generation, including Ho Chi Minh, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and Kwame Nkrumah. He became convinced that Maoist China represented the best model for Zanzibar's future development. The Chinese wanted world revolution, whereas the Soviets, under Khrushchev, were aiming for peaceful coexistence with the capitalist West. And like so many other visitors to China, Issa was deeply impressed by the high levels of discipline, which he wanted to also impose on Zanzibar. By this time, Issa was also a married man. His wife, a political activist, gave birth to four children. They named their first daughter after a Russian ballerina, the second after Mao Zedong, and the third after Fidel Castro. They named their son Stalin. Years later, as an adult, Stalin changed his name to Sultan. By 1963, it was clear the ZNP had a very real chance of winning another election and inheriting power from the British. Yet a split emerged between socialists like Issa and the conservative mainstream of the party. Issa had done his part to encourage socialism by providing dozens of scholarships to young party members to go and study in places like China and Eastern Europe. More often than not, they came back to Zanzibar radicalized by the experience. In mid-63, the socialists left the ZNP to form the UMA party. In Swahili, UMA can mean the people or the masses. Their desertion did not have any quick impact on Zanzibari politics. However, the ZNP narrowly won the elections of that year and went on to inherit power from the British in December. By that time, Issa escaped illegally from Zanzibar in the middle of the night, traveling by boat to the mainland from where he got on a plane to join his family in China. Thus, Issa was away from Zanzibar when the ASP mounted a nighttime assault on the government's armories, capturing a mountain of weapons and forcing the ZNP ministers to surrender within a few hours. The last Sultan of Zanzibar, who represented an Arab family dynasty that had conquered the islands in the 19th century and profited greatly from the slave trade, got on his yacht and fled into exile, never to return. Issa was also away when members of the ASP now armed and dangerous, took their vengeance upon Zanzibar's Arab population. In the most lethal outbreak of anti-Arab violence in post-colonial Africa's history, thousands died, and thousands more were raped, plundered, arrested, and sent on ships into immediate 
and involuntary exile. Issa's own uncle was killed in the violence. Nevertheless, when Issa in China heard the news of the revolution, he was ecstatic and made plans to return home. Absolutely fascinating story already. Um, can you talk a little bit about the transition for Issa between the ZNP and the UMA party and how how that, and obviously he was away for a good part of that, but maybe uh, explore in a little more detail how, how that occurred. Yeah, that's a great question, Ernie. And keep in mind that Issa was not the only socialist in Zanzibar. There were a number of others. And they basically felt that the ZNP was becoming too conservative for them and that they should go ahead and form their own party that would be overtly socialist rather than part of some sort of big tent operation. Um, they knew they couldn't win elections. They knew that they were a minority party, but they had in mind the idea of a Leninist vanguard party. They, though small, they would be influential through their control of newspapers and trade unions and gradually shift the conversation towards socialism somehow. And they became actually uh, closely allied with the ASP in the last months before the revolution. So when the ASP did seize power, they asked the UMA members like Issa to join with them in a ruling coalition. So Thomas, do you think that Issa was truly an ideologue or was he just in love with the personalities and possibilities of revolution and change in the world through which he moved? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, he lived at a time when the assumption was is that so-called backward societies would modernize somehow. And this kind of ideas and high hopes and expectations you know, crisscrossed the whole world. And so he typically thought in those terms, backwardness versus advanced societies. And he saw socialism as the way to advance in the ranks of nations and to shed their so-called backwardness. He believed that, that, that socialism was scientific, whereas everything else was less so. Socialism was rational and enlightened and the wave of the future. And a lot of people felt that way at the time. And so he was very much, first and foremost, a person who wanted to change the world in which he lived and felt socialism was the way forward. And he was willing to even stop at nothing. I mean, he expressed no scruples. He, you know, he named his son after Stalin, for example, and he told me personally that had he been in Stalin's position, we would have done the exact same thing, you know, massacre millions of people along the way, but to achieve his objectives of modernization. So somewhat ruthless, at least in theory. He never actually, in real life, was quite that ruthless. So uh, this business with Issa, was it all just talk that he uh, was a very great proponent of ruthlessness, or was did he actually carry out uh, that level of uh, intensity? Well, there is some ruthlessness in what he did, but it wasn't rising to the level of Stalin or other people we could mention. Um, but he was very much carried away with the romance of revolution. The idea of it was, I think he found intoxicating. And he really wanted to, you know, just turn Zanzibar upside down completely and felt that he and his cohort, his socialist uh, network, had all the answers, you know, as people like Che Guevara did at the time and Fidel Castro. So that kind of confidence now in the 21st century might seem rather quaint but that was the feeling of the time, that they had all the answers.
While chaotic, the revolution gave Issa an opportunity to serve in the new government, desperately in need of help from anyone with some degree of education. Though he was an Arab, and Arabs were generally decreed the enemy, the new president and chairman of the ASP, Abed Karume, appointed him a district officer in the island of Pemba. There, in order to impose some semblance of order of chaos, he commanded petty offenders to be flogged in the town square. But after only two months, he was transferred to London on a, on a diplomatic assignment. There he met and fell in love with Maria, an English woman in her 20s. They went out drinking and dancing and then traveled to Paris together. After returning to Zanzibar, Issa convinced her to visit and to continue the affair. On her second trip, she finally consented to marriage, though he was married already and with five kids in all. Maria converted to Islam and became his second wife. Issa then divorced his first and found work for her in China as a translator where she went to live with most of his children. Issa's star was meanwhile rising within the revolutionary firmament. Not long after his first wife's father was executed by the new regime as an alleged conspirator, Issa was put in charge of confiscating the homes of hundreds of Arabs and Asians, especially in Zanzibar town. Some had already died or fled the islands. Those who remained saw much of their life savings confiscated by the state. This was part of a general campaign to transfer Arab and Asian wealth to members of the African majority. The state also seized Arab and Asian-owned clove and coconut plantations without compensation and transferred them to Africans in three-acre plots. In 1965, Issa was appointed Minister of Education and soon imposed a racial quota system in the schools. In the interest of equity, Africans were given about 85% of the seats in secondary schools. Issa was also committed to spreading literacy and building new schools. He had some success in this regard, though due to a shortage of qualified teachers, low teacher salaries, and overcrowded classrooms, the quality of instruction declined. Meanwhile, he and Maria had three children and built their dream house on the beach south of Zanzibar town with three stories, seven bedrooms, two kitchens, a study, a bar, and servants' quarters. His salary as a minister was more than 10 times that of a teacher. Plus, he was given 12 acres of land in the countryside, an official car and driver. He had the power to arrest anyone who displeased him and not politically connected. Life was good, but not for ordinary islanders who suffered from chronic scarcities of food and basic essentials like clothing and soap, who were forced to work for free on the government's public work projects and who feared arrest for saying anything critical of the government. Yet in a time of widespread hunger, Issa could smuggle anything he wanted from the mainland or purchase it at a special shop set aside for the ruling elite. Life was especially hard for Arabs and Indians, who were exposed to intense racial discrimination. They were stripped of their jobs and had their properties taken. Their businesses were shut down. The regime passed a law that made it illegal for a young woman to turn down a marriage proposal unless the man had cholera, leprosy, or a criminal record. This was to ensure that big shots in the regime who wanted to marry young Arab and Asian women would not be refused. As a result, many families married their daughters off at a very young age, or they fled the islands at night by dhow or canoe. In total, about three quarters of the combined Arab and Indian populations either died in the revolution or fled in the years that followed. As the years passed, Issa became more disillusioned with the revolution. He watched as the regime put the people on rations of rice, sugar, and flour. As Minister of Health, he watched as President Karume stopped funding efforts to eradicate malaria, 
causing deaths by the disease to skyrocket. Anissa watched as several ministers who offended Karume were removed from their posts and executed. As one of the very few Arabs serving an African nationalist regime, he felt especially vulnerable. And so he kept quiet and said nothing. Very, very exciting chapter there. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about his first wife. Uh, uh, we left her off sort of going to China and be curious to hear more about her. Yeah, unfortunately, I've not been able to interview his first wife. I've interviewed two of his wives in total, but not the first. But she went off to China and there uh, experienced the Cultural Revolution in the late 60s. And things were so bad that she, that she had to leave there uh, uh, for the Middle East. And her daughters were sent for a period of time to actually to the UK where schools were better. But she, she herself resettled in the, in Oman, in the Gulf, and started a new life there. I don't think she ever re remarried, but uh, she lived, lived quite a life there for a while. Very unique for a young Zanzibari woman to, because she would often accompany Ali Sultanisa on his travels, you know, to North Vietnam and Eastern Europe and so forth. So she saw the world in a way that few people had of her time and place. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um, I was wondering, well, what I found kind of amazing is that as an Arab, Issa was able to serve such a racially purist African regime. And what in his character, maybe his mercurial nature, made that possible, do you think, such a role? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I should point out that despite the initial violence of the revolution, which was very much anti-Arab, the new regime, when it first came to power, was trying to adopt a policy of colorblindness and trying to sort of ease racial tensions and reach out to Arabs and Asians saying, we've got your back, basically, and we're not going to further persecute you. And so for the first two years, that was basically the, the norm for most Arabs and Asians. Their lives were secure, their properties were not, but their lives were generally secure. And then things got worse as time went on, so that then by 1966 and 67, that's when you see a mass exodus of those who did remain, especially in, uh, on Zanzibar Island, not so much Pemba. So the Uma socialists, of which Issa was one, initially influenced the regime to kind of like put race aside. And there was some hope that the regime would actually um, you know, rise above racial politics. And I think Issa shared that hope, but ultimately, like many others, he was disillusioned and saw the, um, the depredations wrought upon minority communities. So was he mercurial? Yes. Was he an opportunist? Absolutely. But there was also this genuine hope that the regime might actually transcend racial politics, at least for a while. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh what's happening in this period with the formation of Tanzania, because this is, this is a new development and basically how Issa's life fitted into that new uh, dynamic. That's a great story because for a while there, British and American observers were convinced Zanzibar was becoming the Cuba of East Africa, sort of a poisonous um, contagion of communism that would spread across the region. And so, and because of the concentration of communists like Issa, but also several others I could mention, 
So there was a, an assumption that early on they would actually seize power, um, the socialists. Uh, and so they encouraged Nereri, in particular, the president of neighboring Tanganyika on the mainland, to try and forge some sort of federation between the mainland of Tanganyika and the islands of Zanzibar to sort of neutralize the, the Marxist threat in the region. And Nereri cooperated somewhat um, initially. He made overtures along these lines because he himself was worried about the East East Africa becoming embroiled in Cold War conflicts. He wanted to keep them as far away from him as possible. Uh, finally, in April, he decided to act rather definitively by threatening Karume that if there was no federation uh, of the two territories, then he would withdraw his police forces from Zanzibar, which were the only security forces keeping him in power and some sort of security for the new incipient state. So that threat seemed to have convinced Karume to form a federation. So from that agreement comes the United Republic of Tanzania. And the word Tanzania is just a, an amalgamation of two words, Tanganyika and Zanzibar. They just combined to form the word, new word Tanzania. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.